Hello listeners, welcome back to A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. This week we'll be discussing problem plays. With me today I have Dr. Carla Delegata. Dr. Carla Delegata is a theatre historian and performance theorist whose research focuses on ethnicity, orality and gender and sexuality. She is currently Assistant Professor of English at Florida State University, where she teaches critical theory, Shakespeare, Latinx theatre, and LGBTQ theatre. She co-edited Shakespeare and Latinidad, a collection of essays and interviews with 25 contributors, and her monograph, Latinx Shakespeare's Staging U.S. Intracultural Theatre, is open access with University of Michigan Press. She built and maintains the archive of Latinx theatre theatrical adaptation, latinxshakespeares.org, which includes over 275 productions and adaptations of Shakespeare and other canonical works. Thank you for joining me today. This is amazing. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So to get things started, how did you get into Shakespeare? Oh, um, my mother was an English teacher, a high school English teacher, and she loved Shakespeare. And my father was a Spanish teacher and Spanish for native speakers te um, teacher, and he loved the theater. And so somewhere between the two of them, I went to the theater a lot. And I went to the theater in, I went to Spanish language theater um, from before I could actually speak or read. And so I grew up not in a bilingual household, um, but not in a monolingual one either. So I was accustomed to going to the theater and I, I didn't necessarily understand what was going on um, because I, I didn't speak both languages equally. So when it came to Shakespeare, I think where I was with my bilingualism between Spanish and English, when I was in high school and junior high, poetry actually felt easier to me because it wasn't in, po in paragraph form. And I'm not saying that I understood Shakespeare better than other people, but I took to it much more easily, um, I think, for that reason. I also, just serendipitously, I was in honors drama um, in my freshman year of high school, I had to audition and I got into it and we were performing scenes for a festival and they they picked the tragedy and they picked the comedy each year. And the tragedy that year was Romeo and Juliet. And serendipitously, we that was the play we were reading in freshman honors English. And so my first real introduction to Shakespeare in school was in drama class and in my English class at the same time, reading and performing the same play. And then after that, I guess I was pretty hooked. So um, that's how I came to, to Shakespeare and later started working on Shakespeare's that are bilingual and that take up Latinx culture and so forth. That's really interesting. Bilingual or translated Shakespeare is really fun to play around with. My second language is Russian, and I've watched King Lear in Russian performed by the Malitiadr. And it was a magnificent production. My Russian is mostly conversational, so I didn't necessarily get all of it, but there's something magical about hearing these words in a different language. Absolutely. And and when some people get nervous about hearing another language on stage, it's a good to remind them that, you know, we're not all understanding everything that's really being said or meant um, in necessarily in Shakespeare's verse and prose either. And so at least with Spanish, um, for example, there are a lot of Spanish speakers or people who are familiar with Spanish in the United States. And I grew up in Southern California, so very much so there. And so when we take Benvolio's first greeting to Romeo, good morrow, cousin. Um, oftentimes it's translated to buenos dias, cousin. And buenos dias is much easier for a lot of people to understand, even if they don't speak Spanish, than good morrow, because it's much more familiar to the language that we use today. So 
that's kind of where my interest comes from. And a lot of the, the Shakespeare's in the United States that I'm working on are bilingual or semi-bilingual and they integrate Spanish into the script. That's great. It's a lot of fun. Um, and a lot of music and Spanish music, Spanish language music and different Latin music and so forth that kind of give the, the sounds and the orals like soundscape of, of a Spanish language and Latinx cultures as well. That's, yeah, that is brilliant. Shakespeare covered a lot of different cultures in his plays, but yeah, I don't think he covered Latin Latin culture. No, when when in the United States, when we say Latinx or Latinx, Latina, Latino, whichever um, version you want to use, we're we're referring to people who are products of or descendants of um, Spanish colonization. So the people of the Americas who are descended from that, who are are descended from Spanish heritage, indigenous heritage, even African heritage as well. And so all of that Spanish colonization was happening during Shakespeare's time. So there's uh, three, a few references to Mexico, only in The Merchant of Venice. And I believe in the Comedy of Errors, they, they reference the Americas, but that's it. That's the only mentions um, in the texts uh, of the American continents. So uh, it's kind of, it's a different formation in the sense that where other scholars are talking about cultures that are not well represented or perhaps misrepresented um, in Shakespeare's plays, the cultures that I'm talking about are just absent. And so it opens up different possibilities for how you dramaturgically integrate culture into a play, into a canon that just doesn't mention it at all. So it's a good deal of fun, but I could talk about that for a long time and I won't hear. <laughs> well, the topic of today's conversation is problem plays. So I guess the first thing I want to ask for the sake of those who aren't familiar with the term problem plays, what do we mean when we talk about Shakespeare's problem plays? That is an excellent question that there is not much agreement on. So I'm actually going to backtrack. Um, in the first folio, which was published in 1623 after Shakespeare's death, the three sections on what we call the table of contents are comedies, histories, and tragedies. And The Tempest is listed first um, as a comedy, um, including plays like Measure for Measure and All's Well That Ends Well and Winter's Tale are all listed as comedies. Um, Cymbeline is actually listed as a tragedy. And so those were the three categories um, that were given by the editors of the first folio. Um, Problem play is a term that first appears in 1896, much later on, um, by a, a British editor and critic named Frederick Samuel Boas. And he wrote this book called Shakespeare and His Predecessors. And he applies the term problem play to all's well that ends well, Troilus and Cressida, measure for measure, and quite strangely to us, Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah. Hamlet. Yeah, um, seems a little strange. Uh, and and Boas is coming out of this um, experience in the Victorian era where people like to categorize things. Whenever I think of the Victorians, that's what I think of. They want to put order onto things, um, whether they, they adhere to that or not. And he's also working with um, the very popular playwrights and uh, popular plays and important plays of the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen. And Ibsen's body of work, he wrote A Doll's House, for example, um, very popular in his time. He's also credited as being the, the father of modernism, one of the fathers of modernism and of realism in the theater. And so Ibsen is writing um, 
and people had talked about the problems of Ibsen's plays are that he's he's taking on modern life in dealing with social and sexual issues. And so this gets transposed back onto Shakespeare. Uh, Ibsen was familiar with Shakespeare. There are connections with some of his plays. Um, and he kind of rejected a lot of artificial devices like blank verse and soliloquy and mistaken identities and things like that. So, so what happens is that um, the term gets mapped back on onto Shakespeare's plays, onto some of them that that has to do with um, both genre and also thematics of it as well. So, um, so an early modern comedy, so I'm gonna distinguish between, and so this is what they're differentiating from. An early modern comedy, for the most part, we have four characteristics. Um, they'll depict a range of social classes, some people are made to look ridiculous. Nobody dies on stage, but people can die off stage. And there are unions at the end, even if they're problematic. So a problem play can either be something that invokes or takes up a social issue and doesn't give us one ethical way of looking at it. So it poses a problem from that perspective. Or from a genre perspective, it's not a tragedy and it's not a comedy. And a tragicomedy, which we a term we hear later and often applied to romances, a tragicomedy will will create a problem and then offer catharsis at the end, and a comedy will induce humor. And so, a play like Measure for Measure, from a genre perspective, um, one character dies off stage, but no one dies on stage, and there are unions, and and it. It, it is a comedy, but it poses some issues for how uproariously funny is it? And, and then also structurally and thematically, we have some questions about what are we supposed to take away from this? Because, yeah, in the first folio, they were all placed under these categories, comedies, tragedies, histories, which I've discussed in the last three episodes of this podcast. So I hope you've checked those out. But these plays, they yeah, they form a genre of their own. And yeah, I completely agree. The Victorians love to, you know, label things and put them in boxes. But these plays don't like being put into boxes, do they? No, which is precisely why people after Boas, there are a number of scholars after that who add in different plays, including The Merchant of Venice and and even Twelfth Night, which to me is the, the very epitome of a comedy, but some other people have applied that as well. And, and there's a scholar named Norman Rapkin, and he very famously wrote an essay on Henry V. And he, in that, um, he wrote, quote, since by now virtually every other play in the canon has been called a problem play, let me add Henry V to the number. <laughs> and, and at that point, so more recently, scholars will say that there really is no such thing as a problem play because none of them fit into a genre. So when we when I think of problem plays, I, I always think of measure for measure, all's well that ends well, and Troilus and Cressida. And sometimes some of the romance, the romances, including Winter's Tale and Cymbeline, might get added in as well. But that's when you hear that term, that's generally what people are thinking of. Yeah. You made an interesting point about the Twelfth Night. The reason that people might consider it to be a problem play is Malvolio, right. I think, yeah. And I believe there was even a play written after after Shakespeare's play in the 17th century about literally called Malvolio. Right, I, I think there is too. And Twelfth Night is the last, what we call the last legit comedy that he writes. And the only other comedy that Shakespeare writes after that is Measure for Measure. And, um, and what we get with Malvolio is this question of, 
I mean, he's he's destroyed at the end, and and it's not uproariously funny. Oftentimes in performance, we don't understand it as such, and so it poses an ethical question that is not resolved, and that's where a problem play. That's where that idea comes from. Um, it fits all the other standards of a comedy, um, as does Measure for Measure. But Measure for Measure, I would say, gets messier than Twelfth Night. And, and Twelfth Night is Shakespeare's most musical play. And oftentimes the music kind of lifts it and makes it a little bit lighter, even if the lyrics are sad um, and so forth. So there's something about the musicality um, in performance that tends to shift the mood and tone. It's it's a much lighter play, even though obviously Malvolio at the end, when he returns on stage, it's a very painful moment. But one thing that I find interesting, especially considering that, you know, Measure for Measure came after the Twelfth Night, is that Malvolio in his play, he's talked about as being almost a Puritan in his behavior, and he's generally disliked for that fact. And then in Measure for Measure, Shakespeare would go on to use that archetype, that kind of puritanical idea for like Angelo, for instance. Right. And Measure for Measure is the problem play that I think that gets produced, at least in the United States, more often than any of them. And is it tends to be the one that, that people know the best compared to Troilus and All's Well That Ends Well. So we see it more often in performance. In the United States, it became, it started getting performed more at colleges and universities during the Me Too movement. So we've seen a bit of a resurgence there. But yes, in Measure for Measure, you have this idea of Isabella, who is preparing to be a nun, and, and her ideas based on Christianity. It's the only Shakespeare play that's named for a biblical passage. But she's working through ideas about punishment and forgiveness that are predicated on Christianity. And Measure for Measure is the play in the canon that uses the word justice the most time. And in, in Act 5, Scene 1, which is the only scene in Act 5, nearly everybody gets on stage and justice 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 and they have to figure out what is right how do we forgive and it, it it leaves this unresolved feeling where you have these characters including Angelo who's outed for the crime that he committed and he basically says I'm paraphrasing terribly yeah I did it and then we're all supposed to be happy um I, I don't really understand um and as well as the Duke's proposal to Isabella which is always a question for staging how we take that yes it's a very complex play in many ways because at the beginning we have the Duke planning to leave, the Duke planning to, you know, put Angelo in charge to clean up his mess, to clean up, you know, the state that Vienna has gotten into, to misquote another, well, potential problem play, something is rotten in the state of Vienna. So <laughs> that needs to yes. be, you know, he wants that sorted out, but he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to be the bad guy. So he disguises himself as a friar, which is interesting, which is very interesting. Right. Shakespeare's friars are interesting, to say the least. Right, right. And also when we have characters who go in disguise, typically we have Viola who disguises as Cesario, we have Rosalind who goes in disguise in the Forest of Arden, but here we have a, a man in a position of power who goes in disguise to escape from having to impose the very laws that he's been part of. It's a very different use of disguise. We also have a, a reverse bed trick. So the, the bed trick that comes up in several plays, including All's Well That Ends Well. And we have a man who is duped um, and doesn't understand who he's actually in bed with, right? Um, and it's used to, as well with, with All's Well, to, to right a wrong, which is kind of a, 
a strange theatrical maneuver. But I think I think measure for measure brings up the difference between righteousness and religious piety. And we start to see that kind of nascent as well um, in with Malvolio and Twelfth Night. Yes. And going forward with that, I find it very interesting that, you know, Isabella wants to go into, she wants to be a nun. She wants to lead a single life. And of course, comedies are all about union at the end, as you mentioned earlier. It's about people coupling off, getting married, and this theme of regeneration. Of course, it doesn't work if she becomes a nun, so that is not going to happen. And I find it I find it interesting that when Lucio knocks on the door, a nun, Francesca, which is already a rather interesting name, she says, look, if you talk to a man, you must wear a veil, or if you look at him, you cannot speak. And then at the end of the play, the veil is used as a device. Absolutely. And when Mariana comes out and, and Angelo cannot see who it is. And yeah. she says, I will not unveil until my husband bid me. Right. So we have, you know, a shift from this use of the veil as a symbol of celibacy to a symbol of marriage. And that's just an example of the uneasy comic progression of the play, because, I mean, again, the bed trick. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. But but even going back to Twelfth Night, Viola's use of disguise, she actually gets what she wants. Like playing with gender in, in that play isn't, it's subversive, but, but it works for her. Playing with class in Twelfth Night, that's a huge problem, right? Um, and, and you see what happens with Malvolio and, and that, that becomes an issue. But so the proposal after Orsino proposes and Viola doesn't have a verbal response, we don't have any dialogue there. Quite a different, typically, feeling from the audience because Viola has been in love with him. And so, okay, now he's proposed and I suppose we're we're supposed to be happy. Great. Um, and, and with measure for measure, as you were saying, Isabella wants to live a life of solitude and and to be a nun and so what happens when the duke proposes as a as a congratulations and thank you that's that's not the reward that she was going for um and it also poses these questions too if she was the person who chose this this life um away from society and she's the one who's best negotiating not the duke who chose supposedly a life of public service right and um who's who's destined to do that type of work, he knows he's not very good at it. So he leaves and gets somebody else to do it <laughs> who's not very good at it. And then Isabella, who didn't want to interact with these people at all, she's the one who who ultimately makes it work and gets justice to be put on stage. I mean, maybe that's really the way that that justice works is when you get everybody in a room together and you just out every all the secrets and you address everything head on. Maybe that's what justice is it's interesting i can't quite recall i'm not great with chronology which was written first measure for measure or all's well they're right in the same period and i actually want to to bring up that issue of chronology um because that's a lot of what the victorians were trying to make a story about and a lot of what the desire for organization is really about as well so in the early plays uh, of shakespeare and dates can be debated by different people. So, but but if we're taking Shakespeare's career from about 1589 to 1613 in there, his earlier plays, there are a lot of history plays and there are a lot of the sonnets. And, and we know that 
the theaters were shut down fairly often because of the plague and the history plays have a lot of battle scenes and think of them as our, our Marvel Cinematic Universe type of, of plays, right? You know what I mean? There's a lot of action and they were fun and you could write sequels and things like that. And people knew the characters because they're based off people in real life, right? And then we get this period between like 1599 and 1603, kind of exactly in the middle of his career, where we get a number of the heavy hitters, like As You Like It, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, Twelfth Night, Othello. But also in that period are Henry V, Troilus, All's Well, and Measure for Measure. And so part of this desire is to say that he got to the middle and wrote the real serious tragedies that we all love and know. And then he goes a little strange something more strange and writes these romances or problem plays at the end. I'm like, no, he was writing problem plays at the same time. And there's a desire to create a narrative about Shakespeare and his creative arc, right? There are certainly differences in the early modern world and in early modern theater um, throughout the 25 years that Shakespeare is working. Absolutely, right? But I think there's also a problem of Oh, I use that term. There's a problem um, when we try to make it so organized. You know what I mean? Yes. I think, yeah, when it comes to art in general and creativity, I think it, it would be interesting to consider him writing these problem plays alongside the tragedies because they push, they push the boundaries of tragedy, definitely. They come very close. I mean, the Duke initially deceives Isabella into thinking that her brother is dead, and that is a whole other issue. <laughs> right, right. And then she tells her brother, well, of course, you know, you wouldn't want me to sacrifice myself in this way. And he says, well, maybe it would be all right and tries to kind of gaslight her into oh, doing gosh, it. You know? yeah. <laughs> like there's, there's a number of problems. But we do have the societal critique that the reason why her brother um, Claudio cannot afford and the reason why he hasn't married Juliet and his and and that's why he he goes to jail that kind of sets off this whole he gets arrested in public and um, they do it publicly to make to to use him to show other people they're going to be enforcing the laws but the reason that he hasn't actually married Juliet is that he can't afford the marriage bans and it's a class difference and it wasn't for lack of love. He just yes. simply can't afford them. And so that's part of where the societal critique comes in. And we don't get that in a lot of other Shakespeare plays. These characters who are, I just can't afford it. And this is a huge issue. There's a great dialogue between Aeschylus and Pompey. Mm -hmm. So Pompey, he calls himself, yeah, a tapster. Obviously, yeah, he's, in uh, Aeschylus's words, a bored. And so Aeschylus is saying, what think you of the trade? You know, is it a lawful trade? And Pompey answers, if the law would allow it. And then he's asked again who he is. And he says, truly, sir, I'm a poor man that would live. Right. And so he's talking about this trade in terms of, you know, survival, in terms of just getting by, because honesty wasn't always a way of living. If it didn't pay enough, then sometimes you had to resort to other things. Absolutely. And later, uh, a more recent scholar named A.G. Harmon, he kind of writes about problem plays as part of a debate between law and nature and the, quote, proliferating legalism, end quote, in early modern culture, that the plays kind of follow a formula, right? There are the established laws that society has and they're challenged. And then chaos or, you know, ensues over society. And then chaos is depleted by the institution of a new order. And so Measure for Measure can be seen as a play about revolution. It's, on, it's about a society on the cusp of integrating a new order. 
And what it does is it, Isabella, it invokes the idea of what are our ideas about Christianity as, as the, the lessons that can be learned from that, from the, the nascent nun in training, right? Um, how, how are those ideas shaping forgiveness, the law? what type of businesses can run and so forth. But, but really, it's about a society on the cusp of revolution. And Pompey has another line where he responds to Aeschylus saying, if you do to everybody else what you're doing to Claudio for this offence, if you don't geld and spay the youth of the city, they will do it. So if you if you do this to everyone, I'll be able to buy one of the best houses in Vienna for, I think, three pence, he says. And that's a socioeconomic critique. That's basically saying, yeah, you will screw up the economy so badly by implementing this that, you know, people like me will be able to live like people like you. Precisely. And and so that's where this the problem of the problem plays usually is that it poses a problem for people to figure out the ethics. We don't know what side we're supposed to take in the end. And to me, that's the very nature. One of the things I really love about the theater, one of the things I really love about dramatic literature, I had a mentor in graduate school who would always say that plays don't give answers, they ask questions. And so I think most of Shakespeare's plays do, which is why we enjoy seeing them again and again and enjoy reading them again and again, but especially these plays, these few plays right in there, and they confuse audiences today. Why would she want him in the end? <laughs> you know, why would Mariana actually still want Angelo? I'm like, um, it's hard for us to put to put our heads and our hearts around that one. And again, the reason that Angelo broke off his engagement with Mariana was because her dowry was lost at sea. Right. right. With her brother. Yes. It... Instead of supporting her through the loss of her brother, he ditches her because of the loss of her money. Right. And we can see him as an evil character, but also she had no dowry. And and he became a man of the law, and that is how he is making his living. And so with the economic strain on all of these characters, it causes them to move away from the the very tenets of Christianity that they may even want to uphold. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, one of the ideas in the play is that poor people can't necessarily afford morals. Absolutely. And yeah, to paraphrase Pompey severely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and we also see I, one of my favorite characters in, in this play is Lucio because uh, yes yeah what a wonderful role because of where the audience sees him in the beginning and in a very comical manner right and and the way that information is passed and understood and lying and so forth right his deception gets him in trouble the duke's deception gets him applause and so even the difference of how lying about your identity or lying about what people have said who gets punished for that right so more recently people have started to critique the duke the duke of dark corners right who in in much earlier scholarship was held up as the duke as someone noble as someone who did wonderful things and now I think, thankfully, there's more of a critique of maybe he's yeah. not such a great guy. Um. <laughs> yeah, to bring you thus together, it is no sin to uh, to Mariana. Mm -hmm. Actually, by putting a different woman in there that the guy did not consent to, I mean, what he's doing is already sleazy to begin with, but that makes it even harder to wrap your head around. And I find it interesting that this device is also used in All's Well, because if I remember correctly, that's orchestrated by Helena and Diana. Yes. Yeah. by the woman, whereas in Measure for Measure, it's orchestrated by the Duke. 
Correct. Thomas Fryer. Yes. <laughs> so in, in the end, yeah, it's a man dictating what's going to happen. Well, and also, and in Measure for Measure, they think that the Duke is a friar. So they're following the, re the religious figure's direction, which places it even more problematically. It's not two women um, scheming to right what they feel are the wrongs, right? This is, this is direction coming from a religious figure. And they follow it because it comes from the religious figure. And it's hugely problematic. I, <laughs> just, sorry, that is an understatement and I'm aware of it. But in other plays that get thrown into the problem play terminology, for example, uh, one of them I, I, I always kind of shrug my shoulders at is The Winner's Tale because it's a romance and I know that those will be discussed later. But I think that there are big differences in a play such as that in ideas about remorse and regret that don't pose the same type of ethical questions that, that we get in Measure for Measure and All's Well That Ends Well. Troilus and Cressida is, is a play with a lot of people. And, and I- A lot. A lot. And I won't get much into that. And I think it's not, I've seen it staged a few times, but, but it can be hard to follow simply because you have a lot of people um, <laughs> up on stage. And it, it poses the same types of questions. But um, I find that one to be, if there's confusion or a problem with that play, no matter how well it's done, it's usually because there are so many people and it can be a little bit uh, more challenging to follow for that reason. And once again, we have the whole thing about sexual politics brought out throughout the play in the figure of Pandarus. In his epilogue, for instance, the last line, I think, is quite famous. And at that time, bequeath you my diseases. Very uncomfortable line, especially when you consider the context in which well, Shakespeare was living and writing. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other plays that, that gets thrown into this category that more people can say is a problem is The Merchant of Venice, mm. which by definition is a comedy because no one dies on stage, there are unions, and, and it, it fits that. And it's much earlier, since we're talking about chronology, it's much earlier in Shakespeare's writing. But that is incredibly uncomfortable, especially today, given our 20th century history and the treatment of Jews. And, and so that play is forever problematic in any modern and contemporary context for all the reasons that we have. But, but nonetheless, it's also where the ideas of, of organizing our Victorian friends who want to put order on things, some, I don't mean to go entirely against that, some information is helpful, right? So we know that Shakespeare had a son named Hamnet who dies. And then a few years later, Shakespeare writes a play not about a father losing a son, but about a son losing a father. He writes Hamlet and, and he writes, I could say, away from his pain and shifts the story. But so some biological information is helpful. Some theatrical information is helpful, right? That Christopher Marlowe wrote The Jew of Malta. It was incredibly popular. The play has a Jewish character. So then Shakespeare writes The Merchant of Venice. That's helpful in understanding, right? But an artistic understanding is also, that information can be helpful. Shakespeare writes Two Gentlemen of Verona towards the beginning of his career. And two men are in love with the same woman and it's a comedy. But then he writes the two noble kinsmen at the end of his career with 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 um, Fletcher, and and there are two men in love with the same woman, and it is not funny at all. And so so some information, some organizing principles are incredibly helpful. But just because something is difficult to understand or to figure out how you're supposed to feel doesn't mean you get to put that on the play. <laughs> These plays are complicated. I want to talk briefly as well about Hamlet as a problem play. How does that fit in? Oh, well, one of the things that tragedy is supposed to provide is catharsis in the end. 
whether that's for the the actors, the characters, and or the audience, who is the catharsis for question that comes up a lot. And at the end of Hamlet, I I don't know. So many people are dead on stage and Fortune Bros, <laughs> a lot of people are dead. Um, and Fortune Bros and his crew come in. And I've I've said to students before, I'm like, what is the tragedy of Hamlet? Is, are we sad that he didn't become king? Because I'm not sure he'd be that great of a king. I mean, so so what how are we supposed to what do we take away from all of that? But this is where I feel that the question is, what did I learn from going to the theater? Which isn't necessarily a question that we have to put on to, to plays in theater. Like it's always supposed to be a learning experience. But I don't know, how, how do you see Hamlet as a problem play? Well, there are certainly problems, not just the problem of, you know, <laughs> his uncle killing the king and then marrying Hamlet's mother. That's, that's a separate issue. But problems, for instance, in the treatment of Ophelia, and the play deals with that at length. There's been lots of paintings right. of Ophelia in the river, mm-hmm. which I absolutely adore, by uh, Millet, by Waterhouse. There's all these beautiful paintings of this young woman who's, you know, lost herself to this tragedy of the Prince of Denmark. And I find it interesting that she is portrayed more than Hamlet is in these works. She, who has suffered because of his tragedy. I don't know. I think that's one of the biggest problems for me. And and what what you're getting at, what that absolutely does is, you know, Hamlet, the monologues break up. Most actors will say who played the role, like that's how they mark their their time. And he gets to come downstage and tell us how he's feeling and to debate whether he should take his own life. But the one person in the play who does, we don't get to hear from having that consideration. And so that's where other artists have picked up her story in in the visual arts, in in adaptation and things like that as well, because we're that is absent from us. And, and I think that you're absolutely right. That's part of where the question, the ethical question comes in, that we don't, we don't get that. So we get the deliberation by one character and we get the action by another which is very Hamlet, the difference between the deliberation and the action. Um, and that that's very key to the play. So yeah, the the scholar Frederick Jameson, who writes a lot, who wrote a lot about postmodernism and, and so forth, he talks about Shakespeare's problem plays as the difference between the syntactic and the semantic. And he says, syntactic ideas are structural. We expect a tragedy to have a decline of a person and catharsis, right? There needs to be some type of ending. Semantic ideas are tonal, whether it's serious, lofty, philosophical. And so Shakespeare's problem plays are a clash between the semantic and the syntactic. What happens with all the humor in Hamlet, right? And there's a lot, there's a lot of funny stuff. There is, yeah. Yeah. Fishmonger. Yeah. And the, the players come and he's joking, you know, and, and there's all sorts of funny stuff. And then, so how do we gauge that? It's not that it, the decline of Hamlet, is he going, like, where, where, what is the catharsis? We don't know how to put the semantic ideas, the tonal, in conjunction with the structure of something that's like a tragedy. And so if if a play gets too philosophical, then is it tragic? And so so I think that Jameson's ideas, the syntactic and the semantic, can be actually helpful for thinking about where does the problem, where does that feeling of a problem come from? And, and in those last moments of Hamlet, when 
when Horatio has returned, right? And he's typically holding his friend in his arms and all these people are dead on stage. The whole court has been wiped out and Laertes has done this wonderful thing and forgiven Hamlet right at the end, you know, and which is great, you know, this wonderful moment. And then a whole bunch of people come on stage like, okay, we're taking over the crown. And Yeah, Fortinbras. He just comes, he comes, and I suppose it's kind of a regeneration. It's a kind of restoration of some form of order. Order by war, like we're taking over. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And that can be viewed as another problem. And another thing possibly, because Hamlet is very much a revenge tragedy. Right. And Shakespeare kind of experimented with revenge tragedy early on. I think of Titus Andronicus, which is a revenge play in so many different ways. Tamora literally pretends to be revenge. And in that play, there's a kind of almost sadistic pleasure taken in the blood and gore on stage. But if we look at Hamlet and we look at Hamlet's moral crisis throughout the play, it can almost make us wonder whether revenge is in fact the right thing, whether there is any other way of handling this. Well, and when he does take action in the Arras scene and he hears the noise behind it and assumes that it's Claudius the king and then goes towards the curtain and stabs and it winds up being Polonius. There's not as long of a moment of regret (laughs) as our modern sensibilities would like. And he immediately shifts to, there's no like, I killed the wrong man. Oh no. Like, and, and that's after all of his deliberation and his focus on Claudius. And also he just killed someone um, who, who we might believe is the first person that Hamlet has killed in his life. We have no information that he's killed other people in, in the course of his life, that that doesn't weigh on him. And he that, that's, that's a bit of a problem for, for not just our modern sensibilities, but, but in general, we want our tragic hero. We want the, the person who goes in decline to, to at some point express that remorse and we don't get it yes i i don't consider hamlet to be a problem play um so if i were to go along with this idea that there are problem plays which i'm not which which i can understand why some may be categorized that way to me it doesn't strike the same ethical questions and and ethical ambiguity as some of the other plays we're discussing and perhaps because it it deals with nobility in crisis which is something that we see over and over again in different ways and and that type of changing of the guard versus the whole society like in measure for measure in dealing with laws that have been created by people and and so i see it as a bit different in dealing with a royal family and issues of succession than a society that has created laws and customs and wants to punish regular people and poor people in that society. So I'm more apt to to ascribe that term problem play to measure for measure and all's well and other plays like that. Yes. And measure for measure is definitely staged more, as you said, I think because I mean, yeah, the Me Too movement, these issues of consent, these issues that Shakespeare actually covered, possibly not even with the intent to do such a thorough critique of them, but, you know, succeeded to. Because it's interesting to consider that these plays would have, or in Shakespeare's terms, were purely comic. Because they ended well, they were categorised as comedies. Right. I mean, they could have been tragedies. If we've got Cymbeline in tragedies, these could definitely belong in tragedies. But, you know, they were put in comedies for a reason. This is viewed as a restoration. This is regeneration. This is fixing the problems that we've seen in the play 
and moving forward except it doesn't right and I think that's more of is that more of a modern perspective do you think than it would have been back then well some of it I I might actually go in the different direction that in Greek theater characters could not die on stage and and that had to do with dramaturgical reasons and big differences from Aeschylus to Sophocles they made Sophocles added another actor and there there are great innovations that are going on rather rapidly in in classical theater but so it had to do with dramaturgically because once someone died on stage how are you going to get them off right and they didn't have the even the special effects and the movement that we have in the early modern period so we're talking 2000 years later right um but it also had to do with the religious reason that you you weren't going to the theater to watch people being killed so even in Agamemnon I mean Aeschylus's kind of first play of the Aristia, Agamemnon is killed offstage and they wheeled him back on. They kind of had two special effects or set things. They had this thing where someone could fly in or get dropped in for your deus ex machina or something like that. And they had this thing that I call it the wheelbarrow, but it basically probably just wheeled like something on and wheeled a body off. So Agamemnon dies offstage, they wheel him on, they're like, look, he died. And, and then they close it out. So it may have to do with an older dramaturgy still resonating in the early modern period, which is why it's often called the Renaissance, because it's a rebirth of, an, of antiquity and classical values. And that that's a bit of a carryover that as long as no one dies on stage, it can be funny. It's a comedy. Like that may be the crucial factor of defining a tragedy, right? And so if that's the nugget that, that people held onto, I can understand where that tradition comes from. And then to our modern sensibilities, yeah, we've got all sorts of issues, but we tend to accept that we're coming to it from a different perspective. But I I think of that quite often about no one could die on stage in antiquity and some of the holdover kind of goes to that could be a definition of comedy. Because there are a number of Greek plays that are comedies that are not overly funny either. It's Roman. It's the Roman comedy that does what we would call slapstick. Um, Roman comedy and when they adapt Greek Greek plays, that's when we get the kind of like that that film, um, funny thing happened on the way to the forum and it's all slapstick comedy. That's always, that's what I think of as Roman comedy, right? Um, but Greek comedy wasn't ha ha, laugh out loud. No. No. So so I think Shakespeare and his contemporaries very much build on that and, and give us a lot more laughs and some more music and some other stuff, too. But um, yeah. Yes. It's about early modern values, I suppose. What would the audience have thought? Because in the end, the audience is all important. The audience is for whom you write the plays. It's for the people who bring the money in. Right. And if they didn't like it, they could get it off stage very quickly. Of course, very quickly. <laughs> our, our audiences today, if they don't like it, you still paid for the rest of the run and you have to employ the actors and just suffer with poor ticket sales. But no, yeah. back then, that play was off stage. Um, that play gets booted out if the audience didn't like it. And we talked about the, how these plays deal with sexual politics. Well, we have to think about in the Globe, for instance, who would have been in the audience? There would have been a lot going on in the audience. Correct. A lot. <laughs> Precisely. A lot, a lot happening out there too. Um, so, so, but I think that some of what is entertaining, um, because they were entertainments and they were part of a larger group of entertainments going on in in the liberties and um and even at court as well. So that it's a larger part of of something that's not meant to necessarily take the place of slapstick funny or absolute tragic death. And is Shakespeare 
progresses in his artistry, right? He's mixing it up more and more. And I think that that's important, which is why towards the end of his career, we get the romances, which again, is a term that we're putting onto them that his original editors did not. And I think that we have, that his, that his also group of influences gets wider as theater's developing in his time. And as he starts partnering with with other people, including Fletcher, who's informed by Spanish Golden Age theater, and we start to see shifts in what the you know those collaborations can do. Yes. Now I have I have a little theory, and I, it's just something I came up with for fun because I've been studying Measure for Measure for A level. So it's just looking at some of the parallels actually between Measure for Measure and Romeo and Juliet, which I find very interesting in this discussion because. For those of you who haven't looked at the show must go online, Carla here introduced Measure for Measure and I introduced Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> so in Measure for Measure, we have Juliet as a character and we also have Aeschylus. And in Romeo and Juliet, we have Prince Aeschylus, the authority figure, and we have obviously Juliet. Yes. So I kind of think, because in the in Romeo and Juliet at the end, Prince Aeschylus says, some will be pardoned, some punished. And then in Measure for Measure, Aeschylus said, pardon is yet the nurse of second woe. And Juliet, I, I like to think of it, of Shakespeare bringing these names back as being kind of like, what could have happened if they didn't die? If, well, who knows what happened? Who knows what could have happened? Absolutely. And I... And Romeo and Juliet being his second tragedy after Titus, right? Titus is his first, very much invoked in the kind of an older, an older dramaturgy, right? And 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 these kind of mythic figures as well. And Romeo and Juliet is structured very much like a comedy. I mean, right when we know that she's not really dead and he doesn't know, but the audience does. And this is the setup for a comedy. Like, I mean, that that play could, they don't like each other. We don't know why. It doesn't matter. We got that from the beginning. Like, this is a setup for a comedy. The whole thing is structured that way. And then, boom, we have tragedy. And so here he gives us a comedy, haha, um, but it has a number of those same elements. And I've always said there's, there's nothing Veronese about Romeo and Juliet. The setting isn't really part of the plot. And yeah. in Measure for Measure, we have all these wonderful Italian names for our setting in Vienna doesn't make any sense um yeah and so yes Shakespeare was notoriously horrible at geography right um as we see in the made-up coastline in the winter's tale for centuries people have been going with it um but I think that that as some people you know they're the, some of our scholars, especially from the Victorian era and, and after that, in that way of thinking, we're trying to, to say there's a code and we can figure it out. And, and here's the way that it works. And here's a wonderful order of how he was, you know, writing his plays. To me, it, as I said, it's artists are taking up, we all do, we have similar themes and ideas that are going to come up for us throughout our lives. And, and as you grow in age and have more experience, your take on them will be different and you want to rewrite it. And we see that with artists who adapt their own work from theater into the film version or who change their plays when they get remounted, right? People are adapting their own work. And so he's taking some of these ideas of a society that's pitting people against each other and shifting where that comes from, right? You know, does it, and in Measure for Measure, it comes in introducing the show must go online. I think I, I don't know if I said Isabella is the protagonist. She, she's not really the protagonist, but her point of view is essential and crucial to the structure of the play and to the action going forward. So she doesn't have to be Rosalind and As You Like It, um, but 
but her presence and her ideas about forgiveness are what makes the play move forward. And it's a different way of having a female, I, fem, the woman, the female characters' um, ideas at the center of the play. Yes, but at the same time, she's decentralized at the end when her plan for who she wants to be is thwarted. Right. And the Duke proposes to her, and we have that famous silence. Because how can you say no? Again, it's an issue of consent. Right. And the, the famous silence of Viola after Orsino, again, she gets what she wants. So she doesn't respond, but we're supposed to be happy for her. And she that's what she wanted. But But Isabella, as you and I have said, was choosing something entirely different. She was interrupted, literally, um, with a knock at the door and um, and called to action. And she does that. And does she have the the autonomy to choose to go back to where she wanted to be? And also we question and the desire. So that and we don't get that answer, which is our lack of catharsis for our characters, uh, for our audience and maybe for our actors sometimes, too. Um, so that just depends. Because can she can she say no in that position? Not really. No, no. No one else gets to say no. Angelo winds up getting a wife and, and Claudio will have his wife and everybody gets to couple up because it's a it, it's a comedy and it's time to go over to the bear baiting. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's interesting to consider that, yeah, she's going into this life as a nun. But she wants to get away from the city, from all the things that are surrounding her. At least that's my interpretation of it. And then she marries the person in charge. But will she be able to have any influence over, you know, improving the city or over her religious ideals? Well, and and if if we hypothesize this marriage to the Duke, then he still employed Angelo and she doesn't have a very good rapport with him. So I don't imagine I feel like someone should write that sequel, Isabella's Daily Life. Um, and that should that should be the Yes. The terrible um, play of, of that could follow this. But I, I think a lot of these questions about what makes a play problematic and what do we want to, what closure do we want? And we like things, we don't need everything to be ticked and tied, right? Um, but we need for our central characters, I won't call it protagonist, but for our central characters, we want some type of resolution. And and in to me the Winter's Tale, we absolutely get that the the reunion of Leontes and and Hermione like what however we might feel like oh so much damage was done we get that reunion and we don't in Hamlet we get a new restoration of order coming from the outside in measure for measure the new order is is coming from within it's about society that has to reshape itself not just a royal family it's about a, an entire society that's struggling. And, and that's harder to watch. Yes, and again, going back to my misquote earlier, something that was yeah. written in State of Vienna, I think a line like that would possibly have more of a place in Measure for Measure than even in Hamlet, because it's not the state that's the problem, or as far as we know. We don't know about the rest of Denmark. <laughs> we only know about the royal family. <laughs> right. That's, I think that's the difference, right. because tragedy is about right. individualization to an extent. It's about focusing on a small group of characters, narrowing it down to the tragic protagonist standing alone. Whereas in comedies, we can look at these social issues, we can look at them, we can laugh at them, and we can also feel profoundly uncomfortable about them. 
Right. And that's part of the disorder that certain things were funnier to the early modern audience about disorder, right? Than we find them today. But but it's supposed to jumble things up. And when it comes to tragedy, there are many scholars before me who have said a Shakespearean tragedy is when the protagonist doesn't have any friends around. And we certainly see what happens to Hamlet. It's a matter of, of when Horatio goes away. I guess Macbeth's closest friend is his wife, not necessarily the best friend to have, um, but she too also goes away and disappears and he goes strictly into decline. That when our our sensual character does not have a confidant, that's part of what instigates the decline. And psychoanalytic or psychoanalytic criticism tends to, there's a lot of it out there about what happens when when we're alone, when we're isolated. And and that that that's certainly a take, a perspective to have. But I, I absolutely agree that central to that tragedy is when that character starts to fall away, right? When the character goes into disorder. And we don't see that in, in Measure for Measure. It's not about one character going into disorder, which is actually where I think the uncomfortableness comes from. It's the society. And there is no one easy answer. From a first look, you might think it's Angelo. You might think that, okay, Angelo is the character that goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And that might make you think of it in terms of tragedy, in tragic terms. But when you look closely at it, when you look at, for instance, the way that Pompey informs Aeschylus of actually the kind of world he's living in, the kind of world in which, you know, he's doing what he does to survive, to make a living, it's a lot more complex. Right. And even Lucio, a character who I I tend to really like. um, (laughs) um, He has a son or a child at any rate. Right. And, And so... And, but also he starts off, his manipulations serve justice at certain points, right? He's encouraging Isabel to go forth. He's the one who gets her to like, no, you have to come. Your brother is in need. And so his way of, of pushing people and manipulating them actually serves society quite well. And then it, and then, then not, right? And then because he lied. And so, so we don't have, I don't have an easy way of, we can't categorize each of these characters. And that makes it hard. And I think especially right now, in a, we're living in a time where there are a lot of binaries, un- unfortunately, and, and a lot of judgment, right? Um, and people want the, this is right, this is wrong. He's good, he's bad. And these are the plays that I think in some ways are most important um, right now because they don't have any any easy answers. And I think that that's incredibly I think that's at the heart of a lot of things that are being talked about today. Yes, I agree with that thoroughly. Thank you so much for all these wonderful insights. This has been a great episode. Thank you. Honestly, I'm... (laughs) It's been my pleasure. I I love podcasting. What can I say? This is such a fun thing to do, to talk with such amazing people. I agree. To wrap it up, how about you tell the listeners where they can find you after this? As you mentioned, I built and I manage an an online living theatrical archive um, called latinxshakespeares.org. And we pluralize the S in Shakespeare's to connote a cultural studies approach and an interdisciplinary perspective. So that's why we have ethnic studies, African-American studies, liberal studies pluralized 
more so than the, the singular older disciplines such as English, history, literature, and so forth. So that's where the pluralization of global Shakespeare's comes from. Um, and so I maintain um, latinxshakespeare's.org and the archive will continue to expand with more productions and more historicizing. And other than that, I'm on Twitter and, and I'm publishing more and more. And so I have a number of things that are forthcoming. In the forthcoming, the Oxford Handbook of Shakespeare and Race, I interviewed 14 Shakespeare artists and practitioners, including Ajoa Ando, Chakwudi Abuji, Noma Dumaswani, um, Iqbal Khan. And so their all histories will be part of the Oxford Handbook that will be out by the end of the year. That's incredible. That's really exciting. I'll look out for that. And some Americans too. I was just mentioning the Brits, but... Um, including John Lugazamo, Raul Esparza, and, and a number of other people. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to look out for that. That sounds like a great thing. <laughs> but this has been absolutely great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you've had as much fun as I've had. And I will see you in a moment in The Teenager's Take. Welcome to The Teenager's Take. Having covered the three categorizations of the first folio, I was really excited to delve into a later genre definition in this episode and explore how far these categories merge together or dissolve. Carla certainly did not disappoint. I think you'll agree, listeners, that this was a conversation full of ideas. So here are a couple I've come away with. I think part of what made this discussion so insightful is that to define a problem play, you need to also decide or define what is not a problem play. Consider, for instance, the different opinions presented on Hamlet. Boas considered it, along with Troilus and Cressida, to be an enigma in which events are not to some extent settled as they are in Measure for Measure or All's Well in the fifth act, leaving us to ponder them. I suppose the ethical crisis of to kill or not to kill, so to speak, is part of what Boas bases his definition on. Just because Hamlet kills Claudius at the end does not mean that we have a clean-cut answer as to whether it was the right thing to do. Still, the arrival of Fortinbras on the scene to restore the state of Denmark from its rottenness reminds one of Edgar in King Lear, a play that is beyond dispute a tragedy. The main characters being dead, a new cast must continue the play world in our imaginations. What with the treatment of Ophelia, Gertrude and poor Polonius, I think it's safe to say that this play is a tragedy. As for Measure for Measure and All's Well being partially settled at the end, I think it's pretty clear that Shakespeare did his best to fit these awkward plays into comic convention, torturing them into comedy in the words of Charlotte Lennox, wrapping up with marriage in the one and pregnancy in the other. Professor Emma Smith, in her lectures on these plays, points out the irony of the title of All's Well. We can think of last week's discussion of Henry VIII and its satirical subtitle, All is True, and discusses how Shakespeare twisted his source material from Whetstone's Promos and Cassandra and Chintheo's story of Apitia, where the sisters of both plays sleep with the corrupt official with alternately comic and tragic results. Promos still orders Androgio, the brother's execution, and orders his head to be brought to Cassandra, but the jailer spares him and sends the mangled head of an executed felon instead. While in Chintheo's story, Apitia is not so lucky. Her brother is executed before Apitia takes part in the monstrous bargain. Intriguingly, in Chintheo's tale, the brother was imprisoned for rape 
while Claudia was imprisoned in Shakespeare's play for consensual premarital sex. And even so, they'd already performed a hand-fasting ritual legitimising their nuptials to some extent. Elizabethan and Jacobean audiences loved recognising source stories in the theatre, and they probably would have had fun with this one. But its complications make one wonder, was Shakespeare attempting to smooth out the problems of the source by lightening Claudio's guilt in order to try and make Angelo the key villain? And furthermore, in Cinthio's story, the Emperor or Duke Vincentio figure has no idea of any of it and condemns the story's Angelo to death while forcing him to marry Apitia first. What then are we meant to think of the Duke? When you start asking the questions, they never stop. Perhaps that's what Shakespeare intended. Overall, I think there are two ways of interpreting problem plays as shown by this conversation. We can look at them as plays that have always defied definition and explored social problems of Shakespeare's times that had to be stuffed into the comedies section, either because there was no perfect category for them or because they had to be made comic in order to please the audience, or as plays that are offensive or troublesome to modern sensibilities, such as The Merchant of Venice or The Taming of the Shrew. The anti-Semitism of the former play was sadly rooted in Elizabeth's sensibilities at the time of writing and performance, along with the misogyny of the taming of the shrew. However, performative interpretation can turn these plays from being prejudiced to progressive. The socio-economic ideas Pompey raises in Measure for Measure, along with the problems of consent also raised in All's Well at Ends Well, have always been implicitly critical of the world the play operates within, both textually and metatextually. It really depends on whether one considers these qualms and the discomfort raised by these plays as something that has evolved with modern sociocultural perceptions, or whether this ethical consciousness was already deeply rooted within Shakespeare and his contemporaries. We can think of The Tamer Tamed, for instance, written in response or even in retaliation to The Taming of the Shrew. Defining problem plays, then, involves defining the morals of the mind that wrote it and the minds that categorised it as a comedy. Was this simply a placeholder, since there was no other genre the play would fit into? Or was this categorised thus because this play was genuinely viewed as a comedy, along the lines of those discussed in episode 1? Will we ever know the answer? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Do check out the rest of season 3 if you haven't done so already, and have a look at the podcast's social media. It's A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare on Instagram, and Teen Take Shacks on Twitter. Most of all, do come back next week for Shakespeare's Romance Plates. Bye for now.